In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. I'm assuming you've all listened to the first few sessions. So with that being said, let us jump with both feet right back into the thick of it, into history. Or is it fiction? Timekeeping in the Middle Ages. Historians discuss the chaos reigning in the medieval datings. Peculiar medieval anachronisms. The Scaligerian chronological version was far from being the only one. It competed with virgin virgins? It competed with virgins. Virgins. That's ridiculous. It competed with versions that were significantly different. Bikram mentions the chaos reigning in the medieval datings. 72, page 73. Furthermore, the analysis of ancient documents shows us that old concepts of time were substantially different from modern ones. Before the 13th and 14th century, the devices for time measurement were a rarity and a luxury. Even the scientists didn't always possess them. The Englishman, Valcarius, was lamenting the lack of a clock that afflicted the precision of his observations of a lunar eclipse in 1091. The clocks common for medieval Europe were sundials, hourglasses, and water clocks or clepsidrae. However, sundials only were of use when the weather was good and the clepsidrae remained a scarcity. Page 94. Just so everybody knows, I'm going to put, whenever I read or say a page number that doesn't correspond with what I'm reading or if I stop and say a page number, you should be able to look down and see the figure of which the book is talking about. So FYI, just for that. In the end of the 9th century AD, candles were widely used for timekeeping. The English King Alfred took them along on his journeys and ordered them to be burned one after the other. Page 94. The same manner of timekeeping was used in the 
13th and 14th century in the reign of Charles V, for instance. The monks kept count of time by the amount of holy book pages or psalms they could read in between two observations of the sky. For the majority, the main timekeeping medium was the tolling of the church bells, page 94. One is to bear in mind that astronomical observations require a chronometer that possesses a second hand, while we learn that even after the discovery and the propagation of mechanical chronometers in Europe, they had been lacking the minute hand for a long time. Page 95. It is also to be said that the ultra-sophisticated chronological Kabbalah developed in the Middle Ages contradicts the imprecision of temporal observation. For instance, the very periods used for measuring time on Earth acquire an entirely different duration when used for measuring the biblical events. Augustine equaled every Genesis day to a millennium, thus attempting to define the duration of the history of humankind. Pages 109-110 Such an inherent trait of the medieval historiography as its anachronistic propensity is for importance to us, is of importance to us. Sorry about that. The past is described in the same categories as the contemporary epoch. The biblical and the ancient characters wear medieval attire. A medieval moralist describes courtiness to the ancient Romans, which was a purely knightly virtue. The epochs of the Old and New Testament are not put in a direct temporal sequence. The fact that the portals of medieval cathedrals portray Old Testament kings and patriarchs together with the ancient sages and evangelical characters unravels the anachronistic attitude of history like nothing else. In the end of the 11th century, the crusaders were certain they came to punish the actual executioners of the Savior and not their offspring. Pages 117 to 118. This fact is significant enough, and we shall come back to it later on. Modern historians base their observations on the Scaligerian chronology, believing that the medieval authors had attained a state of great confusion in what concerned both concepts and epochs, due to their alleged ignorance, and that they had confused the ancient biblical epoch with the medieval one. Medieval painters, for instance, kept portraying the biblical and the ancient characters in typically medieval costumes. However, another point of view is also viable, one that differs from the traditional love for anachronisms explanation, namely that all of the statements made by the medieval chronographers and artists may have reflected reality, and we consider them to be anachronistic because we follow the erroneous Scaligerian chronology. The Scaligerian chronological version only managed to immortalize one medieval chronological concept out of many. Other versions previously coexisted with the consensual chronology. For instance, it was assumed that the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation in the 10th through 13th century AD was the immediate descendant of the ancient Roman Empire that is alleged to have existed in the 11th century AD, according to the Scaligerian version. Mark the repercussions of the discussion that appears very odd in our time. Petrarch made the statement that he was supposed to have based on a number of philological and psychological observations that the privileges granted by Nero Caesar to the House of Austrian Dukes in this 13th century AD were fake. It needed proof in those days. 
For the modern historian, the thought that the ancient Caesar and Nero were the contemporaries of a medieval Austrian house of dukes that had only commenced its reign in 1273 AD, that is about 1200 years after Caesar and Nero, is naturally a preposterous one. However, as we see the medieval opponents of Petrarch were of a different opinion since it needed proof. E. Priester makes the following observation in the same notorious documents. All the interested parties were perfectly aware that the documents were blatant and shameless forgeries, such as the modern interpretation of the fact, and nevertheless politely shut their eyes on the circumstance. An abnormally large number of anachronisms that transpose ancient events into the epoch of the 11th through 14th century is contained in the medieval German chronicles and texts. Detailed reference may be obtained. The reader must be accustomed to believing the famous gladiator fights only occur in the distant ancient age. This is not the case, however. V. Klasov, v. Klasovsky in having told us of the gladiator fights in the ancient Rome proceeds to add that these fights took place in the medieval Europe of the 14th century as well. For instance, he mentions the gladiator fights in Naples around 1344 AD, which were attended by Johanna of Naples and Andrew of Hungary. These medieval fights ended with the death of one of the fighters, exactly the way they did in the ancient times. The Chronology and the Dating of Biblical Texts The datings of religious sources are virtually woven out of obscurity and confusion. The biblical chronology and datings are of a very vague nature since they are based on the authority of late medieval theologians. The history, the historians write the following. The true history of the origins of the books comprising the New Testament also fails to concur with the one backed by the church. The order of the New Testament books that is used nowadays is the direct opposite of the one set by the ecclesial tradition. The real names of the authors of medieval books remain unknown. As we shall learn, the consensual point of view about the Old Testament books preceding those of the New Testament also causes many doubts and contradicts the results obtained by modern empirico-statistical dating methods. One should also consider the issue of the age of the biblical manuscripts that have reached our time. They turn out to be of medieval origin. The oldest, more or less complete copies of the Greek Bible are the manuscripts of Alexandria, Vatican, and Mount Sinai. All three manuscripts are dated paleographically, which is with such an ephemeral concept as handwriting style used as a basis. To the second half of the 9th century AD, the codex language is Greek. The least is known about the Vatican Codex. Nobody knows how the artifact manifested in Vatican around 1475. Imagine that. The Alexandrian Codex is known to have been given to the English King Charles I by the Patriarch Cyril Lucris in 1628. The Codex of Mount Sinai was only discovered in the 19th century by K. Tischendorf, pages 268-270. So the three oldest codices of the Bible only surface after the 15th century AD. The reputation of their antiquity was created by the authority of K. Tischendorf, who had based his research on the style of handwriting. However, the very idea of paleographical dating apparently implies the existence of a known global chronology of other documents and thus cannot be regarded as an independent dating method in any way. What we know for certain is that the history of these documents can be traced as far back as 1475. 
In other words, no other more or less complete ancient Greek Bibles exist. Among separate biblical books, the oldest ones are considered to be those of Zechariah and Malachi dated to the alleged 6th century AD. Also, paleographically, the most ancient biblical manuscripts are in Greek. Page 270. There are no Hebraic manuscripts of the Bible predating the 9th century in existence, although those of a more recent time, primarily the middle of the alleged 13th century, are kept in many national libraries. The oldest Hebraic manuscript is a fragment of the books of prophets, and it is dated to 859 AD. One of the two second oldest manuscripts is dated to 916 AD and contains the books of the prophets. The other is dated to 1008 AD and contains the text of the Old Testament. However, the first manuscript was dated to 1228 by the scribe. The so-called Babylonian punctuation of letters given here allows this text to be dated by the Seleucid era, which gives us 916 AD. However, there are no serious foundations for such a statement, and it is hence possible that the dating was given in years since Christ, in which case... in which case the manuscript would belong to the 13th century and not the 10th. The oldest Hebraic document containing the complete Old Testament can be ascribed to the alleged year 1008 AD. It is supposed that the biblical canon was agreed upon by the Laodicean Council in 363 AD, but no edicts of this council remain in existence, and the same concerns the previous councils. The canon was really made official by the new Trident Council called in 1545 the Epoch of the Reformation and continued until 1563. In figure 1.33, we can see a painting of one of the council sessions by Titan. A great many books were destroyed by the edict of the Trident Council, the ones considered apocryphal, namely the Chronicles of the Judaic and Israeli Kings. We shall never be able to read these books, but there is one thing that we can be perfectly certain of. They were destroyed, since they had described history differently from the books approved by the winning faction of the Scaligeriate historians. We should emphasize that there were a lot more apocryphal opuses than those certified canonical, and that most biblical datings are wholly dependent on paleography, which means that they are based upon the a priori chronological knowledge of the Scaligerian school and would change automatically if a chronological paradigm shift occurred. Let us give an important example. In 1902, the Englishman Nash purchased a fragment of an Egyptian papyrus manuscript whose dating cannot be agreed upon by the scientists to this day. The final agreement was made that the text corresponds to the beginning of our era. Later on, after the discovery of the Qumran manuscripts, the comparison of the handwriting styles in both Nash's papyrus and the manuscripts allowed for the determination of the greater antiquity of the latter. Thus, one papyrus fragment, whose dating cannot be agreed upon, pulls a whole lot of other documents after it. Nevertheless, the dating of the Qumran scrolls provoked major dispute among scientists. The dating range was given from the 2nd century and until the epoch of the Crusades. The early AD dating is considered proven after 1962 when a radiocarbon research of the Qumran manuscripts was conducted. However, as, the sh as we shall mention again later on, the radiocarbon method is really unsuitable for the dating of specimens whose age falls into the span of two to three millennia, since the ensuing datings cover too wide of a time range. This may reach a wide 
as wide a span as one to 2,000 years for specimens whose age reaches one to 2,000 years. As you can see there, it's pretty much ridiculous. Although dated the Quran manuscripts to 68 AD, the American historian S. Zetlin categorically insists on the medieval origin of these texts. We shall give a more detailed account of matters concerning the biblical manuscripts in Chronicles 6. Difficulties and contradictions arising from the reading of old text. How does one read a text written in consonants exclusively? The vocalization problem. The datings of other biblical fragments that we possess today also need attentive additional analysis. Attempts to read most of the old manuscripts, such as the biblical and the ancient Egyptian ones, often confront historians with, with severe difficulties. The first steps of our research into the primordial language of the Old Testament brings us to the fact of paramount importance, which is that written Hebrew neither had signs for vowels originally, nor any other signs to replace them. The books of the Old Testament were written in nothing but consonants. The situation is typical. Ancient Slavonic texts, for instance, also come as chains of consonants, often even lacking the vocalization symbols and separation of individual words from one another, just an endless stream of consonants. Ancient Egyptian texts also contain nothing but consonants. The name of the Egyptian kings are rendered in modern literature in a perfectly arbitrary manner, a la primary school textbook content. There is a plethora of significant variations that defy all attempts of classification, being a result of arbitrary interpretation that become tradition. It is possible that the scarcity and the high cost of writing materials made the ancient scribes extremely frugal, and the vowels were eliminated as a result. It is true that if we take a Hebraic Bible or a manuscript nowadays, we shall find a skeleton of consonants filled with dots and other signs that are supposed to refer to the missing vowels. Such signs were not included in the ancient Hebraic Bible. The books had been written in consonants exclusively and filled with vowels by the readers to the best of their ability and in accordance with the apparent demands of common sense and oral tradition. Imagine how precise the kind of writing that consisted of nothing but consonants would be today when the combination BLD, for instance, could mean blood, bled, bold, build, boiled, bald, etc. RVR could stand for river, rover, or raver. The vocalization aleatory quotient in, in ancient Hebraic and other old languages exceptionally high. Many consonant combinations may be vocalized in dozens of ways. Cassinius wrote that it was easily understood how imperfect and unclear such writing method had been. T.F. Curtis also noted that even for priests, the meaning of the scriptures remained extremely doubtful and could only be understood with the aid of the tradition and its authority. Robertson Smith adds, the, adds that the scholars had no other guide but the actual text that was often ambiguous and oral tradition. They had no grammatical rules to follow. The Hebraic that they wrote in often allowed for verbal constructions that were impossible in the ancient language. Scaligerian history considers this status quo to have prevailed for many centuries. It is furthermore assumed that this paucity of the Hebraic Bible was only remedied in the 7th or 8th century of our era when the Maserats had processed the Bible and added symbols that stood for vowels, but they had no other guides but their own intuition and very fragmentary oral tradition, 
and this fact is known perfectly well to every expert in the Hebraic languages. Driver points out that since the Maserats and their efforts in the 7th and 8th centuries, the Jews have started to protect their holy books with the utmost zeal and vigor when it had already been too late to mitigate. The damage done to them in any way, the result of the overzealous protection had been the amanitization of the distortions that had been made equal to the original text in authority. The common opinion used to be that the vowels were introduced to the Hebraic text by Ezra in the 5th century BC. When Levita and Capelius proved the wrong in the 16th and 17th century France, demonstrating that the vowels have only been introduced by the Maserats, the discovery made a great sensation in the entire Protestant Europe. Many were of the opinion that this new theory might lead to the complete dethronement of religion. If the vowels weren't received in an epiphany of divine inspiration, being merely a human creation, and a relatively recent one at that, how could one rely on the text of the Holy Writ? The debate that followed had been amongst the most heated in the history of the new biblical criticism, and had carried on for over a century. It has finally ended when the veracity of the new opinion was acknowledged by everyone. Imagine that. If such fierce disputes flared up around the biblical vocalizations in the 6th through 7th century, could this mean these very vocalizations were introduced very recently? Could this have happened in the 15th through 16th century? And since this vocalization version was far from the commonly accepted version, it had to encounter opposition, which may have been quite vehement. It was only much later that the Maserat deciphering of the Bible shifted by Levita and Capellus into the 7th and 8th century AD, so as to give the biblical text the authority of antiquity. The situation with the Quran must have been similar. We are informed that Arabic writing becomes developed further in the middle of the 7th century when the first transcription of the Quran took place, 651 AD. The additional diacritic marks on, above, or beneath the letter were introduced in the second half of the 7th century for differentiating between similarly written letters for vowels and doubled vowels. Other sources tell us that the vocalizations were only introduced in the second half of the 8th century by Al-Khalil ibn Ahmed. Could all of this activity have taken place in the 15th through 16th century? That's something to think about on a similar but incredibly non-related note. I was going through, there's a phenomenal book called When Google Met WikiLeaks. And in that book, they have Eric Schmidt going and speaking with Julian Assange in the embassy about, I don't know, I think it was six years ago. I have to double check on that. However, they're talking about utilizing Bitcoin as a method for not only currency, but stuffing information into the blockchain, just using different packets and whatnot. And that got me thinking, as we're going through this book, we're learning that there's a real possibility all the dates and the history we are aware of is complete bullshit. It's all made up. And it got me thinking that right around the time Bitcoin soared to $20 million, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks were stuffing a lot of information into the Bitcoin blockchain, potentially Wiener's laptop and stuff from the Hillary campaign. Wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't it be something if Assange and WikiLeaks have put information into the blockchain that most people will not be able to extract at this point in time? However, in the future, 
Might it be that blockchain holds the true and accurate version of history that can't be scrubbed, that can't be changed? And maybe that's one reason why everyone in the mass media is ignoring him and there's so many people in power that hate him is because he has put something into the books that cannot be erased. It cannot be scrubbed from history. It's something to think about. Back to this book. The sounds R and L were often confused in the Middle Ages. We shall give some direct evidence of the fact that the sounds R and L were often subject to flexion. Amsterdam, among others, is a city whose name was affected by such instability and was called Amsterdam, Amsterdam, Amsteldam, Amstelodam. Just so you guys know, it's spelled A-M-S-T-E capital R-D-A-M. And the second one, Amsteldam, A-M-S-T-E-L-D-A-M. And the third was Amstelodam. So just as I'm reading it, I want to kind of give you the visual. We should mention another interesting fact here. Figures 1.34 shows the title page of a book on navigation published in Amsterdam in 1625. The name of the city is already given as Amsterdam, the way it is written today. However, the old engraving that one sees on the same page gives the old name in a rather peculiar spelling, Amstelredam, as in figure 1.35. Both consonants are present here, and a bizarre combination of sounds is achieved as a result. This reminds us that the names of many European towns and cities had remained unstable until fairly recently, when they became emanatized in the printing press epoch. Numerous other examples of the phenomenon are given below. That brings me to an, another interesting point. Has anyone ever thought about how is it that the Ashkenazi Jewish people ended up in the Rhine Valley. And isn't it strange? Like when you think about the word Ashkenazi, what are the last four letters of that word? It's N-A-Z-I. Ashkenazi. Isn't that weird that the Ashkenazi people, or short, you know, it's, it's typical, it's a typical heuristic for people to shorten long words. So wouldn't it be logical to shorten Ashkenazi to Nazi? It's the last four letters of the word. These people were in the Rhine Valley, but if you look up how they got there, it's pretty muddled. Additionally, the Ashkenazi or the Nazis that is talked about in most public schools. It's claimed that they were trying to create a master race of blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. Isn't it interesting when you look at today's events like Jeffrey Epstein, who claimed he was part of the master race, and in New Mexico, what was he doing? He had a breeding program trying to spread his genes because he believed that he was part of a master race. But yet, he claims to be Jewish. In fact, I don't know, was, was he Ashkenazi? I don't know. But isn't it strange that the Ashkenazi, or the, the people we thought were the Nazis, isn't it weird the rhetoric that's used around that? Like the Nazis claim to be the master race. And when I think about Ben Shapiro as an Ashkenazi, that guy is one of the most arrogant, condescending, just an arrogance through the roof. Like he's better than everybody. And he's Ashkenazi. Something to think about. Problems in the Scaligerian geography of biblical events. Archaeology in the Old Testament. The vocalizations of 
Wow, this is a crazy one. The vocalizations of quotidian leximus may not be all that important to our purposes, but the consonant sequences used for names of cities, countries, and rulers definitely are. Hundreds of different vocalizations were spawned, some of which were arbitrarily localized in the Middle East due to the hypothesis that binds biblical events to that area exclusively. The archaeologist Miller Burroughs expresses his unswerving trust in the correctness of the Scaligerian geography, writing that, in general, archaeological work doubtlessly gives one a very strong confidence in the dependability of the biblical indications. One of the modern archaeological authorities, the American William Albright, wrote, albeit hazily, that one should not doubt that archaeology, in reference to the excavations in modern Palestine, confirms just how substantially historical the Old Testament tradition is. However, Albright concedes that the situation with biblical archaeology has so chaotic in the beginning of the 1919-1949 period that the varying views on chronological issues could not have reached any sort of convergence at all and that under those circumstances one really could not have used the archaeological data concerning Palestine for illustrating the Old Testament. The one-time director of the British Museum, Sir Frederick Kenyon, categorically insists that archaeology has refuted the destructive criticism of the second half of the 19th century. W. Keller even published a book titled, Suggestively Enough, and Yet the Bible is Right, which tries to convince the reader of the veracity of the Scaligerian interpretation of biblical data. However, here is some information from the eminent archaeologist L. Wright, also an avid supporter of the theory that the Scaligerian localizations and datings of the biblical events were correct. The overwhelming majority of findings neither prove nor disprove anything. They fill the background and provide a setting for history. Unfortunately, many of the works that can be understood by the average reader have been written with excessive zeal and desire to prove the Bible correct. The evidence is misused for making erroneous and semi-correct conclusions. The pioneers of archaeology in Mesopotamia were C.J. Rich, A.H. Leonard, and P.E. Bota in the 19th century. However, in order to get their research subsidized, they had to advertise their findings in a sensational manner, associating their findings with biblical towns and in a rather arbitrary manner. However, the accumulation of material evidence resulted in a significant quandary. Actual facts show that none of the Old Testament books have concrete archaeological proof of their Scaligerian dating and localization. In the 20th century, L. Woolley, the prominent archaeologist, performed excavations of a town that he tried to identify as the Biblical Ur. That's U-R for those of you. However, it turned out that, unfortunately, one cannot give satisfactory chronological datings of the episodes concerning the biblical Abraham within the span of the second millennium of Middle Eastern history. The Scaligerian history insists that all the events concerning the biblical patriarchs occurred precisely and exclusively on the territory of the modern Mesopotamia and Syria. Nevertheless, it is immediately acknowledged that as to what concerns the identity of the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one can just reiterate that the information obtained as a result of the most fruitful excavations in Syria and Mesopotamia were extremely meager or simply non-existent. One might wonder just how justifiable it is to search for traces of the biblical patriarchs in modern Mesopotamia. 
Furthermore, Scaligerian history is of the opinion that all of the events involving the biblical Abraham and Moses occurred on the territory of modern Egypt. It is evasively stated that the historical intensity of this tradition is not confirmed archaeologically, but its historical plausibility is. But its historical plausibility is. Together with an account of the circumstances that may have been the setting of the patriarch's biography, we are also warned that one is to be cautious in one's use of cultural and social indications for dating purposes, since we have the principal concepts in what regards the era of the patriarchs. One needs to possess a certain flexibility in the fixation of chronology. As we shall soon see, the flexibility may stretch as far as hundreds and even thousands of years. W. Keller proceeds to tell us that Egypt remains indebted to the researchers. In addition to the fact they found nothing about Joseph, neither documents nor any other traces of his time have been discovered. Egypt remains in debt in what concerns Moses as well. In this case, one may wonder yet again about the possibility of biblical events having taken place in a different country, not necessarily bound to the territory of modern Egypt. The archaeologist Albright, an avid supporter of the Scaligerian interpretation of the Bible, has nevertheless got to agree with the fact that the previous concept of the Exodus to Haran from the Chaldean Ur found no archaeological evidence except for the actual city. Furthermore, it turned out that the very location of Mount Sinai is unknown. Another complication is that the Bible often states Mount Horeb to have been the place where the revelation was given. If we are to take the biblical description of the natural phenomena accompanying said procedure seriously, one has to presume the mountain to have been a volcano. The problem is that the mountain called Sinai nowadays has never been a volcano. Some archaeologists place Sinai in North Arabia claiming that it was located in Midian near Kadesh. But none of these mountains were volcanoes either. The Bible says that the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Scaligerian history locates this event somewhere in modern Mesopotamia. The first idea that one gets in the respect is the assumption of a volcanic eruption, but there are no volcanoes in this area. It seems natural to search for these cities in some area that does have volcanoes. However, the search is still conducted in Mesopotamia with great effort and no results whatsoever. And finally, a solution is reached. The southern part of the Dead Sea appears to conceal some debris resembling tree trunks under a 400 meter layer of very salty water, of very salty water of poor transparency. This has sufficed for the American archaeologist D. Finnegan, as well as W. Keller after him, to claim that the Valley of Siddim, together with the charred remains of both cities, had submerged. The Bible scholar and historian Martin Noth states explicitly that there is no reason to ascribe the destruction of the cities found by the archaeologist in Palestine to the Israeli invasion in search of the so-called promised land. As it was noted above from the archaeological point of view, the entire Scaligerian interpretation of the conquest of Canaan by Joshua, the son of Nun, becomes suspended in thin air. Are we conducting our search for the biblical promised land in the correct place? Could the troops of Joshua have been predominantly active elsewhere? It is further written that no archaeological proof of any biblical report of the epic of the judges exists to this day. All the judges' names contained in the Old Testament aren't known 
from any other source and weren't found on any archaeological artifacts from either Palestine or any other country. This concerns the names of the first kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Scaligerian history convinces us that Noah's Ark had moored to Mount Ararat in the Caucasus. Werner Keller assures us that the Armenian village of Bezit still keeps the legend of a shepherd who saw a large wooden vessel on the mount. The Turkish expedition of 1833 mentions some ship made of wood that was seen over the southern glacier. Keller proceeds to tell us that in 1892, a certain Dr. Nuri was leading an expedition in search of the sources of the Euphrates and saw a fragment of a ship on the way back which was filled with snow and dark red on the outside. The Russian aviator officer Roskovitsky claimed to have seen the Ark's remnants from his airplane during the First World War. Tsar Nikolai II is supposed to have commanded an entire expedition there, which had not only seen, but also photographed the remains of the Ark. The American historian and missionary Aaron Smith from Greenboro, an expert in the problem of the Great Deluge, wrote a history of Noah's Ark mentioning 80,000 publications on the topic. Finally, a scientific expedition was arranged. In 1951, Smith spent 12 days on top of Mount Ararat with 40 of his colleagues. They found nothing. Nevertheless, he made the following claim. Even though we failed to find so much as a trace of Noah, my trust in the biblical tale of the deluge had only become firmer. We shall yet return. In 1952, the expedition of Jean de Rigueur obtained similar results. This somewhat anecdotal account here merely scratches the surface of the problem of geographical locations that is so acute for Scaligerian chronology as it were. Herbert Hogg, in his foreword to Cyrus Gordon's book, Historical Foundations of the Old Testament, credits the author with the following. His aim isn't apologetic, which makes him quite unlike other authors that drown the book market in paperbacks attempting to prove the Bible by jumbling together all sorts of sensationalist proof received from ancient oriental sources. Various museums, institutes, and universities send expeditions to the Middle East for biblical excavations. Great sums of money are invested in such excavations, and a great many special societies and funds have been founded with the sole purpose of conducting archaeological research in the Scaligerian biblical countries. The first one of these institutions was the Research Fund of Palestine, founded in 1865. Currently, there are about 20 similar organizations in existence. Among them, we find the American Institute for Oriental Studies, the Jerusalem affiliate of the Vatican Institute of Bible Studies, and the Israeli Research Society. No other region of the planet has been studied by archaeologists with such intensity as the Scaligerian biblical territories. A great variety of literature is published on this subject. As well, special magazines, monographs, atlases, and albums for the popularization of biblical archaeology. The biblical topic is often given priority at the expense of other archaeological issues. The prominent Soviet historian who studied the antiquity, Akademikon Vivi Struve, has got the following to say about it. The excavations in Egypt and Babylonia were only of interest to the bourgeois science since they could be linked to Palestine. In order to find the funding needed for the excavations, the historians had to prove that an ancient copy of the Bible could be unearthed as a result of their research, or the sandals of Moses, mayhap, and then the monies were provided instantly. The following examples are very representative 
In the early 20th century, a tablet archive was found in the city of Uma, Mesopotamia. But since Uma isn't mentioned in the Bible, and no enthusiastic entrepreneur could identify it as some biblical town, the excavations in Uma were stopped. And the archives scattered without even being studied. The tablets were sold to Parisian collectors for one franc per piece. Archaeology, as well as historical science in general, can find no proof of the biblical legend about the Egyptian slavery of the Jews. The Egyptologist Wilhelm Spielberg tells us that what the Bible reports about the plight of Israel in Egypt isn't any more of a historical fact than the accounts of Egyptian history related by Herodotus. V. Stade wrote that anyway it is it is clear that the research concerning the Pharaoh, under whose rule Israel moved into Europe and left it, represents nothing but the juggling of names and dates, void of all meaning. Let us repeat our question. Could an altogether different country be described by the name Egypt? The Bible lists a great many geographical locations that the people of Israel visited during their 40 years of wandering after the exodus from Egypt. The archaeologists still fail to find these locations where the Scaligerian history places their biblical descriptions. Wright says that few sites on the way to Mount Sinai can be identified with any degree of certainty. V. Stade wrote that, Checking the itinerary of Israel has as much sense as, say, tracking the way of the Burgundians return from King Etzel as described in the Nebelungenide. The Egyptologist W. Spielberg quotes this statement saying that we can still sign under every word of stades and that the depiction of events following the Exodus the listing of the sites where stops were made, the crossing of the desert, all of this is fiction. Many sites that were considered to have been on the itinerary of the Israelis were excavated thoroughly and intensively for a long time now. No traces have ever been found. The Biblical Account of the destruction of Jericho is well known. One of the Arabic settlements in the Middle East had been arbitrarily identified as the Biblican Jericho whose walls were destroyed by the sounds of the horn. The settlement has been subject to thorough excavations since the endeavors of Selen, Watzinger, and Garstang in the late 19th century. There were no results. In 1952, an Anglo-American archaeological expedition led by Kathleen Kenyon ventured to continue Garstag's research. No justifications for identifying the excavated town of Jericho have ever been found. Wright wrote that the information received about Jericho was called disappointing. And it is true. Not only is it hard to interpret the biblical tale of Jericho, one cannot so much as trace the outline of the tradition's history. The Jericho issue is more problematic today than ever. The Bible says that after Jericho, the Israelis destroyed the city of A. The site where this city was supposed to have been located, according to the calculations made by the historians, has also been subject to fundamental research. Yet again, the results have failed to satisfy. The German archaeologist and specialist in biblical history, Anton Jirko, expresses his grief over the futility of the Jericho excavations and proceeds to describe those of Ai as afflicted by an even greater discrepancy between the report of the conquest of Ai that ensued and the results of the excavations. According to the Bible, the 
capital of Judea in the reign of King Saul was the city of Gibeah. The historians, the historians have given birth to a hypothesis identifying it as the ruins excavated in the Tel El Full Hill, six kilometers to the north of modern Jerusalem. However, it is conceded that not a single inscription was found in town and no clear evidence that the ruins belong to Saul's palace or a tower that he built. But had Saul's palace really been built there? Conclusion. Archaeological research shows that the books of the Old Testament have no archaeological proof of their localization and dating as suggested by the Scaligerian tradition. Thus, the entire Mesopotamian biblical theory becomes questionable. Archaeology and the New Testament The traditional localization of the events described in the New Testament isn't in any better condition. The lack of archaeological proof of the Scaligerian localization of the New Testament is explained by the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed in the years 66 to 73 and that the Jews had been forbidden to come anywhere near the city. Scaligerian history is of the opinion that Jerusalem can be located at the settlement that the locals call El Quds, whose site used to be perfectly barren before, also known as Elia Capitolina. Elena Capitolina. It was after the passage of some time that the ancient Jerusalem was reborn here, the historical remnants of biblical times shown to tourists today, such as the Wailing Wall, etc., do not hold up to even minimal scientific criticism in full absence of historical and archaeological proof. Figure 1.36 shows an ancient miniature allegedly dating from 1470 that depicts the pillaging of Jerusalem by the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphane. Pages 164-165. As we can see, the medieval author of the miniature didn't hesitate to represent Jerusalem as a typically medieval town with Gothic buildings and towers. And all the warriors wearing medieval plate armor. Isn't that interesting? One must emphasize that the versions exist apart from the Scaligerian. The Catholic Church, for instance, has been claiming the very house that Virgin Mary had lived in and where Archangel Gabriel appeared before her to have been located in the Italian town of Loreto since the 13th century, which means that the Catholic version transfers a part of evangelical events to Italy. The earliest document concerning the Loreto house is the bull issued by Pope Urban VI, dated the 1387. In 1891, Pope Leo XIII issued an encyclical in celebrating of the 600 years of Loretto's miracle. Thus, the miracle is dated to the 13th century AD. Historians mark that Loretto remains a holy pilgrimage place for the Catholics to this day. A.Y. Lensman tells us the following in the search for St. Peter's sepulchre. For instance, in 1940, the excavation sanctioned by Pope Pius XII were commenced under the Vatican crypts. 
and their peak fell on the post-war years. In the late 1940s, a solemn statement was made by the press, especially the Catholic press, since the excavations must have been expensive, that not only the burial spot of the Apostle Peter was found, but his remains as well. An objective analysis of the results of Vatican excavations demonstrated all of these claims to have been false. Pope Pius even had to make a radio announcement on the 24th of December, 1950, where he had acknowledged the impossibility of making any voracious claims about the unearthed human bones belonging to the Apostle. The location of the town of Emmanus, near which Jesus is said to have appeared before his disciples after the resurrection, defies all attempts of being determined. The place of the transfiguration of Jesus, Mount Tabor, also remains impossible to locate. Even the location of Golgotha is doubted by historians. Sec in his Geschichte des Untergangs der Antiken Welt, History of the Ancient World's Decline 3, wrote that we have no intention of picturing his earthly destiny. All the issues of the origins of Christianity are so complex that we are glad to have the opportunity and the right to leave them well alone. A convenient stance and one that has got absolutely nothing to do with science. The archaeologist Schwegler sums up in the following way. This is where the tragedy begins for the believer whose primary need is to know the place on earth where his Savior had lived and suffered. But it is the location of this place of his Christ's death that remains covered in impenetrable darkness. If we are to think in archaeological categories, apparently there is no possibility of determining the location of the cities of Nazareth and Capernaum, as well as that of Golgotha, etc., on the territory of modern Palestine. We shall quote the following noteworthy observation to sum it up. Reading the literature related to evangelical archaeology leaves a strange impression. Tens and hundreds of pages are devoted to the descriptions of how the excavations were organized what the location of the site and the objects relevant to the research looked like, the historical and biblical background for this research, etc. And the final part, the one that is supposed to cover the result of the research, just contains a number of insubstantial and obviously embarrassed phrases about how the problem was not solved. But there's still hope etc. It can be said categorically and with all certainty that not a single event described in the New Testament has any valid archaeological basis for it. This is perfectly true in what concerns the identity and the biography of Jesus Christ. There is no proof for the location of any of the places where the evangelical events are traditionally supposed to have occurred. We ask yet again, is it correct to search for the traces of the events described in the New Testament in the Middle Eastern Palestine? Could they have been taken place somewhere else? Could they have taken place somewhere else? Well, my friends, that's going to be it for this edition here. It's, uh, I'll tell you what, it's a real head scratcher. And it's fun to think about. And I hope it has provided you with about an hour of not having to think about anything else. So until the next one, my friends, 
hope you have something to do, something to look forward to, and someone to love. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.